And this is the Convict Australia podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Hi everyone, I would just like to start by acknowledging the Darrell speaking people who are the traditional custodians of this land and I pay my respects to Elders both past, present and future. So today I have a very special guest with me, historian Michelle Wilson. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Um, And I'd also like to say pay my respects to the Elders of the um, Darrell Nation on which I'm broadcasting to you from today. I live and work on Darug country in Barramatta. So for those who don't know Michelle, she is an expert when it comes to the history of Parramatta. In fact, if you've ever done a tour of some of the historic buildings in Parramatta, Michelle may well have been your guide. Michelle is particularly knowledgeable about one very interesting person in our history, Reverend Samuel Marsden, who is also known as the Flogging Parson. Michelle is here to tell us a bit about the many sides of Marsden. So, Michelle, could you start off by telling us a bit about his early life before he came to Australia? Um, I would really love to. However, um, a lot of Samuel's life prior to coming to Australia is just not known. So um, what we do know is that he was born in Yorkshire, 1765, June 24th is the date most people choose. However, um, some people think he was a year earlier. Most of us um, would argue that his father was a blacksmith and a small um, farmer, landholder, but there are other people who um, say that that's not correct. We know that he didn't really have a good education in his youth, but he was at a much later age um, after being a part of the um, evangelical movement in the Anglican church, even though his parents, we think, were Wesleyans um, rather than Anglicans, taken to um, grammar school at Hull. And then he was supported by um, the Church of England to attend um, college in um, Cambridge and doing a um, a theological degree, which he didn't actually finish. How did he become appointed uh, in New South Wales. Well, was this he something he very... sought out or did they force this position upon him? No, they, they were having trouble because um, we only had one Anglican minister out here at the time, um, Reverend Richard Johnson, and he needed assistance. And it wasn't until 1794 that the Marsdens actually came uh, to Australia. But and when you say the Marsdens, was he married? He was. So I'll when did he get out... married? I'll read out his letter of proposal in a minute um, to Elizabeth. But um, but what it was was he um, was under the patronage of very powerful men in the um, the Church of England, like William Wilberforce, and he was, the reason he didn't finish his degree in Cambridge was because he was appointed to Australia or suggested as, as someone, because it was very hard to get people to come out to New South Wales. Yeah, and, and this is so very early on too. It is, yeah, especially in that role um, at 1794. He was staying um, when he was in Hull. He met the daughter of was a William Briston. So, and they became friends um, through church church groups and Bible readings and Bible study. You could say Elizabeth and Samuel 
came to know each other. So when he knew that he was going to be coming out to New South Wales, he wrote a letter of proposal and it stated London, March 14th, 1793. Dear Betsy, and Elizabeth Christian was known as Betsy. Yeah. I have not I have not had an opportunity to thank you for the scripture characters before now. Since I came to London, my time and thoughts being so very much engaged, I hope you will not consider this as a mark of my disrespect, but rather look upon my peculiar situation as a sufficient apology for my conduct in this thing. Since my lot is now seemingly cast, and God appears to be opening my way to carry the gospel of his son to distant lands, the time has come for me to lay open my thoughts to you, which have long been hid in my own arm breast. I shall venture to submit to your consideration the following important question. And in parentheses, it's got praying at the same time that the Lord would enable you to answer if agreeable to his own will and in such a way as may conduce to your own happiness and mine. The question is this, will you go along with me? If upon considering the subject, you can answer in the affirmative and say, I am willing, then my heart, as far as it is proper, I should give it to the creature and all I have are yours. And oh. he didn't have very much. <laughs> I believe it be for my good and his glory. He will provide me with a helpmate. And if not, he will give me a mind resigned to his will. So he has given her an out there, you know. I persuade myself I should be happy in the enjoyment of you more than any other. Yet I do not wish to purchase my own peace at the expense of your comfort. So again, she's got an out. But only if you think you would be happy. Then I cheerfully offer you my hand and my heart whenever you please. I remain, dear Betsy, yours most affectionately, S. Marsden. Wow, I didn't know that existed. It's a beautiful thing and it shows, for me anyway, they didn't start off as the person we find even 10 years later dealing with colonial Sydney and Parramatta. So what and I find really interesting is that she knew what she was getting herself in, in for, like, you know, the first fleet had gone over. They would have known about the starving colony. How gutsy of her to enter this relationship and know that she was going over over there. Most definitely. Oh, how most, scary. Most definitely. We don't actually know a lot as such about Elizabeth Christen, but the Powerhouse Museum holds her wedding dress that oh, really? she brought with her and was reworked as the wedding dress for um, their daughter, Anne, when she got married. It's yeah. actually my screensaver on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's not, for me, that's not the Marsden side, but um, I'm a, um, a fashion tragic when it comes to, you know, historical fashion. So when I saw that dress form part of an exhibition about six years ago at yeah. the powerhouse of wedding dresses from 17... 17- 88 in Australia right through to modern times. So, oh, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, and it's amazing we have it. It is. So, so was she it. pregnant before they left or she no. fell pregnant on board? She fell pregnant on, on the voyage. So, And I think it was about 10 days before they came into Sydney Cove, Samuel was delivering. Yes, baby. and I hear it was 
a pretty dramatic entrance to the world too. Yeah, not a very, yeah, not a, um, to be born during a storm um, and for someone I think any husband in a way who's never come across that sort of thing before, probably fairly traumatic. Um, and, and they had no help on board, did they? No, no. Um, and pretty much as soon as she was born, the that they were closed into their um their cabin due to storm. So it was it was fairly um horrific, and it wasn't the last time that Elizabeth had issues during the birth. Um, and she suffered a stroke during the birth of her last child. Oh. Um, so Martha. and I believe a wave crashed into the. Cabin, cabin and yeah. they both got flooded. water, the baby and everything yeah. Yeah. got sprayed yeah. with water and the whole, like the bed linen, everything was saturated. Yes. That's right. So to survive that and there's, there's got to be something pushing this couple through these events and I think there's one thing that everybody who comes to look at Samuel Marsden would agree on and that is that at the base of all of his decisions in the very in the early years to be sure was his belief in evangelical Christianity and that that was his purpose in life was to spread the gospel as far as he could. You can get a sense of that dedication just in the proposal to his future wife that's yeah it's yeah this is what I have to do yeah, yep. that's right. How important it is. And I would love you to come and do that with me. So, um, you know, it is. It's a, to me, it just took me back when I first read that and reminded me that underneath all of these people, it's the same humanity that drives us today, that has driven people, you know, for all of human existence and probably will. And that is you know, need for companionship and love and um, and support. Yeah. So, and he found that there was, um, you know, Elizabeth was quite a close companion, confident. He, as far as we know, you know, he spoke to her about issues, um, discussed things with her because a little bit like the MacArthur's, they're out here together. They're a, a unit, you know. A team, so, yeah. Yeah, a team. Um, so much so that when she does have the stroke, he builds her a special carriage because her whole, gosh, memory's going here. I'm pretty sure it was her whole left side that was affected. And she was an inveterate horse rider, loved riding um, around, um, around Parramatta. And then later on with the children being in a you know, coach and going visiting. So he built her a special coach so that she could still take daily drives around Parramatta and be able to be seen and say hello, um, but not to be seen as a cripple sort of thing. Because, mm. again, it's a a lovely thing to do. And when you juxtapose yeah. that against the man that is in the pages of a lot of books, and for me it was like, wow, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Makes him That's, such an interesting character. It, it gives him a humanity that I think yeah. that hasn't been projected in a lot of other um, a lot of other things. So yeah. So I believe he on the on the voyage he clashed with the convicts, the crew, the captain, and we're um, lucky enough to have his journals as well. 
We are. Um, I'm going to be honest with you here. Again, the voyage is not my sort of big area, but you are right in that he did clash. And again, it reminded me of the journey out of the MacArthur's um, three years earlier, <laughs> so, or three and a bit years earlier. And it just showed that he wasn't prepared. Those type of um, clashes show that he believes he's due inherent respect as a minister of, of the church. And he was lucky, I think the ship they came out on, um, I've got it somewhere, did not, um, that's right, the William, was not carrying convicts. So it had cargo um, and, and supplies coming out. So in that way, he was lucky. But as I said, it's just the whole, his, his whole focus was being on um, sermonising, delivering um, the message of the gospel. And if that was ever impeded in any way, that was when he got very upset. Yeah. Um, because that's his role. So, yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine um, being around some yes, um, that's right. Some sailors. Uh, there might have been exactly right. there. That's exactly right. So clashing, yeah, that's right, clashing with the people, that the sailors on board, the language. Yeah. Um, Martin was known for not tolerating cussing, you might want to call it swearing, that type of language. So um, so that would have been in, in, in the presence of his wife, you know, that would have upset yeah. him quite a bit. When they arrived, where was he assigned? They were in Sydney with the Johnsons and and then they came to stay at Parramatta and they were accommodated at the officers' barracks, which are at the bottom of George Street. So if you're in Parramatta today and you go past the Gasworks Bridge, so you're driving down George Street, the Gasworks Bridge is on your left and the as soon as you've gone past that, the officers' barracks for Parramatta were on your right. So, and they were a two-storey um, building. So they were there and then they were given, they moved three, you probably call it three times in Parramatta. So they had a small cottage that was built for them on the corner of Marsden, uh, what was came to be known as Marsden and George, um, which is where the Woolpack Hotel stands today. Okay. Um, and it's still there. So they had a small two-room cottage and they had another, we'll call them huts. So there was one hut for the Marsdens to live in and the other was for Marsden to preach. So, and of course, his congregation was at that time convicts and officers. Neither of those people really wanted to be in the church. So. Yeah. Uh, so when did he get appointed as magistrate? Dates are not my strong point, but it was in the <laughs> That's okay, but I think it was quite early on, wasn't it? Oh, it was 1795, 1796. So magistrates in England often comprised members of the clergy. Oh, okay. But, but it was a different type of magistracy. So they're dealing with, I wouldn't call, well, yeah, I would call them, I suppose, petty crimes and, and things. And um, well, a lot of convicts not- reoffending. Exactly. But they were not that you probably know, you would know more about how it went on than me in, in that respect. But they didn't deal with the massive, you know, big trials or anything like that. But okay. a magistrate in the day to day was going to have to deal with everything. And before he left for the colony, William Wilberforce actively pointed out to Samuel that it was not going to be a good thing for him 
if he was offered this position, because we all, of course, felt that he was going to be offered the position a, or a position of magistrate. Did he have a choice? Like, of course or was there a, a big pressure to accept this role? No, no, no. He, he had a choice. Pressure on Marsden to do anything other than what Marsden wanted to do did not come into Marsden's life until Lachlan Macquarie arrived in the colony. Yeah. So Marsden had the choice to accept the role and he chose to accept it. And there are several factors that probably led Samuel into choosing that. So if you look, if we look back at where most of us believe he came from, was not exactly the upper levels of society in Yorkshire. And so if you're coming out to a place like this and you don't have status where you've come from other than the role he's been given as a clergyman, it would be hard not to say no, wouldn't it? Because you're looking at lifting your family to another level by taking this role. And that is what a lot of people, and, and I believe too, led him to say, yes, I'll take it. It's a rise in status. So the other thing that is argued to be behind Samuel taking on this role is the English versus the Irish in Anglicanism versus Catholicism. And also a way for him to perhaps enforce attendance at the sermons on Sunday, which were never, you, you had to go. And physically, you could be there, but your head wasn't in it, especially if you were a Catholic. So Mm. this role allowed Samuel to deal with all of those things going on in his head that he thought would assist him. And perhaps we don't know, but he thought it might bring Anglicanism and the gospel to a wider audience who really, in his view, needed to be saved. These were people who needed to be saved. So, um, but as Wilberforce was proven to be correct, Samuel taking that role led directly to the flogging parson nickname. That but can you tell called. us a bit more about that, about the types of the severity of the sentences he was handing down? Okay, to do that, I'm going to start with, or it goes, it actually goes back to the relationship between the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church. So flogging, you know, like all about flogging and the naval um, punishments and how the cat of nine tails, you know, was manufactured and what its job was to do. So this was seen as a punishment of choice in the Navy. It was not unusual. But the way Samuel Marsden utilised these um, particular punishments was mostly against the Catholic convicts who came up in front of him. And the worst example that we have um, is from 1800. Um, Is that the Irish uprising? No, this is before. So when you look at Marston's relationship with the governors, he, he arrives after Philip's gone. You've got the rum corps. Coming up to their rise, you've got um, Gross and uh, and Johnson sort of running the colony, and then Hunter. And Hunter and um, Marsden get on really well, right? There's no, um, no enmity between them. Hunter believes um, in Marsden. What Marsden feels is his duty here. Um, he believes in all the tenets 
um, of, you know, marriage, stable society, going to church on Sunday. However, in 1798 in Ireland, of course, there's the Battle of Windsor Hill and most of the rebels there are sent to New South Wales as their punishment. So when they arrive, we start to get a real fear here in New South Wales and in Parramatta of what these, these Irish convicts are capable of, what they bring with them in the form of the capacity to initiate a rebellious phase here amongst the convicts. And we see that coming out when Hunter leaves and Governor King comes in. And King's greatest fear is a rebellion by the Irish convicts, which does happen, of course, um, in 1804. But from the beginning of King's um, governorship, he is always on the lookout for rebellious Irish. And so Marsden, as the magistrate, is also drawn into this. And mm. because Marsden moves around, you know, he's going out to Windsor, to Tungabbey, up to Castle Hill, uh, or not Windsor at that stage, the Green Hills, and he's moving around with his sermons. He does hear a lot and people want to talk to him. In 1800, he does get word from um, a woman that some of the Irish um, convicts making and storing pikes. So, you know, the great sticks that go in the, in the ground, you can put people's heads on, uh, you can use his fortifications. So he is under instructions to find out where these pikes are, where they're being hidden. And that brings us to the flogging of Paddy Galvin and Maurice Fitzgerald. So these are two Irish convicts and Paddy Galvin is only 20 years old. But between Samuel and Richard Atkins, who is judge advocate at that time, they decide to engage in what I call a little bit of state-sanctioned torture. Wow. And that is the use of flogging to get a confession out of somebody. So Paddy Galvin started off with 30 lashes and they were to be delivered on his back. And that was that was sanctioned. That was, if you would call, the, the punishment. Trying to a normal sentence for That's what right. he'd done, yeah. Exactly. So they're trying to find out exactly where these pipes are. But the problem is they decide not to stop at 30 because Paddy's not going to give up. They go to his bottom, so his buttock cheek, and he is delivered of another 30. And he cannot at this time sit down. I've got, sorry, Jennifer. So he's had 30 on the back and now they've moved to the breach. They have, yes, the breach, sorry. <laughs> the buttock. And um, he still isn't going to tell where the pipes are. The thing is, though, nobody knows that these pipes actually exist, whether they exist or not. So, and that is, um, in a way, the theory behind torture, isn't it? You, you're not 100% sure that that what you're, the information you're trying to get is accurate, but you're going to try and get it anyway. And so the next slot is on the back of his calves. Ooh. So there's another 30 to... In the end, it's estimated he's had 100 lashes all over his body. And they're very, and, back then, they were very strict. Well, 
where you got your lashes. There yes, was, exactly. You know, children got lashed on the breech, adults got lashed on the back, around the calves. That's not <laughs> that's not no. standard. That's not legal. No it's, no, it's not standard and legal. And therein lies one of the issues with that. And people who were critical of Marsden at that time continued throughout his whole career to point out facts to this particular episode. Was there um, any um, repercussions from that? Like, did he get in trouble for that? No, because neither of them did, neither he nor Atkins as such, because they, it, it, as I said, it fed back into Governor King's fear of an Irish uprising. That's so they kind of I, turned a blind eye to that. Well, that's why I mentioned, for me, state-sanctioned torture because King is not saying that this is the wrong thing to do because he himself is in such a state, it's, it's, it's a massive fear for him that the Irish will rise up whilst he is governor. And when the uprising does happen, the reason, or one of the reasons, that we actually have very, very little record of that uprising at Castle Hill um, from government sources is that King did not really send a report back to London. He minimised it to the extent that if you don't go looking for these things, you really have no idea that, that it's occurred. So, And um, what about the victim who got these lashes? Did he give anything away? No, like, nothing, no, absolutely nothing. nothing. And yeah. um, that's what I was trying to look for because there was a great point made that he actually said, Paddy Galvin was saying, I'm not going to tell you anything. I would rather die than tell you what you want to know. And that's interesting because it means, for me, it was like, well, did he know? Did he know where they were and he's not going to say? Or is he just teasing them? Yeah. You know, and just saying, you can do anything to me, um, but I'm not going to um, to help you out at all. So um, that that was the, the biggest contributor to where that the flogging parson came from. And but was that term... Like who came up with that term? Do we know? Is that no, something that's don't. come about now or is it something that no, like he had this reputation the in the colony? But, yeah. He did. That was the nickname given to him at the time in the 1790s. Right. And because as a magistrate, when you came before him during the week, that was the standard punishment for what you had done. You had the stocks for very, very minor things. You had floggings and you had hangings. They also, of course, as we know from the, the um, penal colony system, they could send you even further out, say to Newcastle, Coal River, even up to, to um, what's now Brisbane, Moreton Bay. But floggings were easy. They were done fairly quickly. You, and it meant that um, the convicts could get back to work quickly. Exactly, exactly, yeah. because it was not a punishment designed to physically make you incapable of work. So, you know, and... I, I love when I used to do um, the night tours in Parramatta and we, we spoke about flogging there in Prince Alfred Park um, where, the, where the triangle was often put, almost often put. And I would tell people, you know, I'd point out, because they'd go, what happened to people afterwards, you know? And they would be taken across the river back to the little tent hospital where salt, of course, would be applied to the wounds because it's the only, like, antiseptic yeah that you have um and you're given a couple of days and then you know you will put um you will put back to work so but but that's where it came from so the paddy galvin torture case 
was basically where he got the nickname the Flogging Parson from. And it just came from the Irish convicts, as far as we know. So we don't have a name for, um, for who gave well, not that I've found anyway, a name for who gave it to him. So no, I find that um, when you talk about Samuel Marsden, people either love him or hate him. And that's definitely, you know, the flogging side is definitely a really awful side. Can you tell me a bit about the good side, the humanitarian? I believe he did a lot for the female factory and women travelling out to Australia. Yeah, so, um, again, it it sort of um, starts with Governor King. King um, established an orphan school for girls on Norfolk Island. And when he came back, when he and his wife came back um, to Sydney, he established the orphan school in Sydney and that was then transferred to become a larger orphan school at Parramatta and it wasn't until the orphan school arrived in Parramatta that Marsden um, became involved with that as a trustee but before that he was I suppose commissioned to oversee the building of the brick jail or stone jail in Parramatta and no thought had ever been given to what was going to happen to convict women out here in the colony. So as a convict woman, when you arrived, you were basically assigned, out in Parramatta anyway, to what we call convict huts. And one woman to each convict hut, and they were supposed to do the cooking, the cleaning, you know, looking after their assigned up to 12 convict men in these little huts. So... The, the transportation itself, as you know, was the punishment rather than actually what happened to you out here in New South Wales. So Marsden was, when, when he was building this stone jail, the top level then became a, um, a spinning area for yarn, for, for wool, and Marsden was quite worried about what happened to these women at night because that particular room upstairs could only hold maybe... 30 women at night time. It was not built as a, a form of asylum or place for them to be. So the worry became, what did they do at night? Where did they go? Where did they sleep? And again, you're looking at his background as a minister and worrying about the morals of the female convicts, you know, yeah. and, and, and their safety as well. It, it all builds in. To, um, to that. And so he started to, I suppose, look at other ways in which to, um, to, to, to look after them. So early jail, that first one in Prince Alfred, held, held the women upstairs, the women who, who, who couldn't, would find lodgings in Parramatta, as, as best they could. But it wasn't until, whilst King was here, there weren't that many sort of women in the barracks situation. You know, they were out um, on assignment, they could be assigned, they were um, finding work. It's when Lachlan Macquarie arrives and the barracks situation takes over uh, for men with Hyde Park barracks, you yep. know, and not much. It's like the women are forgotten, especially the women at Parramatta. And at its height, I think there were... Marsden was complaining that there were up to 150 women trying to find accommodation in Parramatta in that top floor of that first jail. 
And that's when he started writing to Elizabeth Fry, started sending letters back asking, you know, what can we do for these women? How should we be looking after them? But he also approached Lachlan Macquarie and he was telling Macquarie that these particular setups in Parramatta here were not enough to look after the women. And he wasn't getting anywhere with Macquarie. And again, you've got to go right back to when Macquarie arrives. And up until Lachlan Macquarie, Samuel Marsden had been working with governors who were receptive to his ideas, who didn't pose too much resistance to mm. what he did. But Lachlan Macquarie was slightly different. And some people would suggest or have suggested that because of his position as a, a military man, he took any sort of opposition as a form of insubordination oh, uh, right. as, okay. as governor. So that, that's just one particular argument. Um, and again, Lachlan Macquarie is quite a divisive or is becoming now a divisive figure because people are looking more into his actions out here in the colony and what he did. So it's probably safe to say that Samuel couldn't, with, with the female convicts um, at Parramatta, he had to work behind the scenes to get the new jail off and running, but he had more say, input um, into how the female orphan school was set up and run in that his relationship with Elizabeth Fry led to the orphan school being the first place in the British Empire taking in girls from true orphans, girls whose parents were in um, incarceration, were both convicts, girls whose families couldn't look after them. Yeah. In giving them a future. And that was done by Samuel questioning what was going to happen to these girls once they left. So he worked with Elizabeth Fry to set up a system where for the first time the girls were able to be taught to read, to write, and do basic mathematics, basic arithmetic. And they were also taught trades. So the orphan school at Parramatta trained the girls up in various um, occupations. So um, nursery maid, dairy maid, scullery, they taught them to sew. They gave them skills that once they were rejected from the orphanage at the age of 13, mm -hmm. they could take with them to provide an income for themselves. And to give them a good start in the community. Exactly. And that was something that had not been done anywhere else. And, and that's not to say that Marston was perfect, that or, you know, he was the great social reformer for, in particular for me, for the orphan school, but that um, he saw a need and he worked with someone who could provide um, answers for that need. Because when you think about it as a... Um, a Church of England minister, his job is to, or the way he viewed his job, was to keeping people on the on the straight and narrow, on the, yeah. on the good life too. And you can't just do that as, as he worked out over the years by telling them that was the way to be. You have actually had to provide a basis for them to achieve those goals. So, and the female orphan school um, at Parramatta showed that you could achieve those goals. And, in fact, Elizabeth MacArthur, 
was a great, you could call her a friend of the female orphan school, in that whenever she had a requirement for, um, for, for girls to come in and start in what we today would call an entry-level position in work, her first call was the female orphan school. Um, oh, okay. And, in fact, it was the youngest Marsden daughter, Martha, who was the last of the matrons at the oh. female orphan school as well. So that connection was was maintained. So at the... Um, and was he still a magistrate at this time? No, he'd been removed from the bench. Right. And was that because of that um, illegal flogging? No. Or just um, his oh. time came to an end? So he was removed from the bench twice. One of them was the Douglas case, 1819. Sorry, we'll have to what, Was out. he doing the wrong thing? <laughs> Is that why he was removed? Or? They were, yes. Yeah, so the Douglas case. Did you get training to do this role? No, he didn't have any. So what it was in the Douglas case, so basically he had the misconduct in that case was there was a witness, Anne Rumsby, who was um, uh, a female convict. Yes, so you probably know the case. But in order to protect, I don't know whether it was to protect Douglas or whatever, but he actually had her charged and sent to the factory, even though she was a witness in the case. You know, making himself a powerful enemy with Douglas by intentionally the time he was moved from the bench, I'm pretty sure, was the case of James Ring, who was a servant, who he let abscond. So, um, yes. So I believe he went to New Zealand at some point too in his career. He did. So the New Zealand, spreading the gospel in New Zealand was, I suppose. Was this his idea or did he have an appointment over there or? Again, we've, we've got to come back to uh, before we or understand why he went to New Zealand. One of the um, reasons, again, that Samuel took on New South Wales was the desire to um, bring the gospel to the native inhabitants right. of Australia. And that was, you know, it, it would have been exciting for a missionary. So um, a brand new group of people who are going to be, you're going to be able to convert over to Christianity. But the problem was when Samuel arrives in New South Wales and he discovers through um, his, he and his family, like a lot of um, colonial families at the time, often um, would take on an Aboriginal child, you know, to raise as part of their family. That's what they said, but usually it was just, you know, basic servant type relationship Mm. and with Samuels he finally came to realize that after a few years even though Aboriginal children would take you know they would read they would write they would take on what you would call a sheen of English Englishness they still and this message comes through to us today they still needed to be what is called on country and and with their families so they found out that you could take Aboriginal children away, but you couldn't keep them. And when um, Samuel tried to, to preach to Aboriginal families, Aboriginal people around Parramatta, he found that apart from the acts 
there really wasn't anything that Aboriginal people wanted from Europeans. So, you know, an axe is useful. Their society was not based on, on trade for commerce as such. Yeah. And that was the main way that church missionaries operated by spreading the gospel. They worked best when the societies already had a basic understanding of trade and consumerism. So that's why the South Pacific was targeted. And Samuel worked out um, during a couple of visits to um, England in which he came across um, New Zealand Maori who were in London, that they had a similar culture. So that they would be very happy to engage in trade. So, so when Samuel goes to New Zealand, he actually has his raised funds to start a mission in New Zealand. Did and Elizabeth go with him? I think she went the second time. Right. He went to New and how many kids had they? did they end up having? Seven. Wow. Um, so she had her hands full back home. <laughs> she did. And they lost, they lost um, the first two sons. Right. So um, they, three boys and four daughters, and the first two sons, they lost one of them was thrown from a carriage um, oh. as they were coming up the, the parsonage or, you know, they were coming up what we call the Western Road, which is the Great Western Highway, um, right. at Parramatta there, and the carriage slipped and mm. died. And the second one fell into a pot of boiling water. In the oh. I know. Suffering. Oh, that's awful. Uh, it is awful. And those two boys are buried in the family crypt in... Um, in St John's Cemetery. And so, where is Marsden? He's in the family crypt at St John's Cemetery. So it's chocker with Marsdens, Betts, Bobarts, <laughs> everybody who married into the family. So Elizabeth is there, um, Samuel is there, daughters um, and their husbands are there. It's probably about four metres square. So they must have a lot of descendants living in Australia still? They do. So um, descendants in the Bathurst area, descendants, of course, we even in contemporary Sydney, we all know John Marsden, lawyer and author. On one tour I did, um, which talked about Samuel, I had two descendants on that tour and they were, I was, I suppose I was privileged to, to be able to chat with them because every year the Marsden family in New South Wales has a big get-together oh, okay. um, and they have, and I, was, I was able to show them the Rose Garden at um, MacArthur Girls High. That was Samuel's largest, I wouldn't say largest, but the most prominent land grant he had where he did build a house for he and Elizabeth to live, but they never actually moved in because she died in I think, 1834 and then he died in 1838. But the, I was able to show them where the house was and the rose garden that sort of is in, or was in front of the school when I was there and still was a few years ago, um, that sort of delineates the whole front section of the house and where it looked out onto the river. So, um, yeah. And well, he's a very interesting character. He's done good deeds and bad deeds. and um... He has. And I apologise if that was a bit of a, a travel through... Um, as Dr. Who would call it, 
bit timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. But, well, there's just so much. We could talk for hours on him. He's had such a colourful life. I um, So it's hard to, to sort of get it down yeah. to. <laughs> but, look, I, I do want to actually say um, just one more thing. So as much as Samuel was a divisive character, he really, he met a nemesis in Lachlan Macquarie. And most of Samuel's troubles came during that period when Macquarie was here because Samuel said no to running um, the native institution that Macquarie wanted to set up. And he, he did that because he said the Aboriginal people, the native peoples out here, have no need for um, Anglicanism, Anglicanism for education. They don't want anything from us. And in Samuel's mind, that meant that they could no longer play a role in his evangelical spreading of the gospel. So, you know, people say he hated Aboriginal people, but I don't think he did. He just didn't see a space for them in what his job was, which is why he went to New Zealand. He found that. And he also said no to Macquarie, came to sitting on a commission for overseeing public roads because, and he found out about this through the newspaper, an article in the Gazette, saying Mr Samuel Marsden is or Reverend Samuel Marsden is appointed. But the two other men he was with were emancipated convicts. And people um, oh he hates emancipers, you know, all this. Marsden wrote back and, and said to, to Macquarie, it's not that they are emancipated convicts because he let his own emancipated convict, James Ring, escape off to New Zealand, but that they are living in sin. And that is why I will not will not sit with them. Samuel was often accused of being more interested in matters of um, financial interest. So the farming, the purchase of a boat, raising money for the church missionary society, these were all seen as negatives as opposed to him focusing on his core job um, as the Anglican um, minister and the senior Anglican minister. And on one trip back to London, he was supposed to... um, bring a whole lot of books back for a free lending library in Parramatta. And a lot of those books were never seen outside the parsonage. Right. So, So anyway, all of this culminates in 1817. Macquarie can't attack him personally, can't can't be seen to be attacking. So he has his um, secretary, John Campbell, write a letter to the Sydney Gazette, which is called Signed Philo Free, you know, and it attacks Marsden for um, the, the the way he makes money from the Church Missionary Society by charging for the use of his boat, the active. It alludes to trading of muskets and powder by his um, missionaries in New Zealand. It complains, it's a very sarcastic, like it's all done sarcastically. Yeah. Um, you know, and it also complains about the missing books for the library. And that really seals the whole deal with Macquarie and Marsden's relationship. It never really recovers. Even though yeah. Ma- um, Macquarie does put him on these boards for the factory, for the orphan school, the damage is done as far as Marsden's concerned. And it forms the basis of the first ever libel case brought to um, the courts in Sydney. And Campbell is is found guilty of libel. So, But for me, that is just as a... A sort of a student of Macquarie's actions as well. It's a an, an interesting twist um, of 
or, or an early twist of how you use the media, how the media was used and, um, and government officials were used to attack uh, at that stage a you know, sort of public slash private, private citizen from the government. So nothing's can new I, in New South Wales. Can I just ask, what did Commissioner Big think of Samuel Marston? I don't think he personally liked him, but he agreed um, with, and he used a lot of Marsden's letters back to London. That's what drew big, one of the things that drew big out here to New South Wales was um, Marsden's constant criticising under the guise of wanting to assist, wanting to help. You know, how can we help, you know, reform in New South Wales? But um, the constant criticism of Macquarie's administration um, were what drew big out here to New South Wales was what's interesting. Yeah. And and he of course had a lot to say about Governor Macquarie. And I think it was probably the, one of the few times um, in that period that uh, John MacArthur and Samuel Marsden came together as well um, in criticism of Lachlan Macquarie and how he was he was running the colony. So yeah. mm. they did play a big part in that. And yeah, so thank you for listening. Thank you for that. coming on um, the show. This has just been fascinating. I hope so. As I said, there's just there's there's so much, really so much, and so many divisive opinions. Um, yes, it's about Martin. People either love him or hate him. They do, and and I, I sort of I haven't found a middle ground. I think some of the things the man did were unconscionable, um, and I think there was a part of him that didn't want to admit that what he was doing went against every ounce of training he had had as an Anglican minister. But I also understand the desire to set his family up with a large family like that, you know, and the, the massive land grants he still have. The only property we have, well, we have two properties left, I suppose, that are associated with Samuel Marston, and one is St John's Church in Parramatta, St John's Cathedral, all that's left of Marsden's church that Marsden would recognise today, the two spires and um, the clock. All right. Um, yeah, his original church from 1803 just sort of crumbled and fell down. And oh, it wasn't his fault. He didn't build it. So he recognised that. And the house at Mamre, at St Mary's. Okay. So um, the two-storey sort of um, colonial Georgian um, two-storey two, double-pile cottage that's on that site there. So, so where um, can people, if they want to read up more about Samuel Marsden, um, can you recommend a book or any way they can start their research to have a more balanced view <laughs> of his life? Like there's a lot of books out there that are very negative and really talk about him as the flogging parson, but is there oh, exactly. books no, that are there's... a bit more balanced that show the good and the bad so we can make our own decisions? Okay, my... My starting point would be Sandy Yarwood. So um, that is Samuel Marsden, The Great Survivor by A.T. Yarwood. And, okay. Um, but, again, as I said earlier, Sandy does have a propensity to gloss over some of the negatives. There is a probably in the last few years this book has come out. Um, so The World, The Flesh and the Devil, The Life and Opinions of Samuel Marsden in England and the Antipodes. I have not broken this one yet. Because as you can see, it's about 10 centimetres thick. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is Samuel Marsden, Alter Ego by Richard Quinn, and that is the one that is super, super, super negative of right. Samuel Marsden. You can also go to the New Zealand um, History 
Trust um, has some great articles on Marsden's influence in New Zealand. Strangely enough, the Lachlan Macquarie resource uh, papers at Macquarie University have a great deal about Samuel Marsden. You've got historical journals of Australia and New South Wales will have the direct. Yeah, um, the Mitchell Library has his journal. Um, exactly. on his time exactly. on the first fleet and right. I'm going to as soon as we finish this I'm going to go and check out the wedding dress of Elizabeth <laughs> so um yes yeah it should be last time I looked it was um they actually had the the wedding dresses from that collection online and um of course there are the Marsden family papers held in the state library okay fantastic so thank collection. you so much that's okay thank you so much for having me so, <laughs> Thank you, and I hope we can get you back on the show again sometime. Or more ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that, Jennifer. Yes. Thank you. All right, bye, Thanks. Michelle. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Convict Australia podcast. If you'd like to show your appreciation and get more involved, there are a number of ways you can. The first is by signing up to Convict Australia on Patreon and you will get some perks like the Convict Australian newsletter. Secondly, leave a review and tell your friends and family. This really does make a huge difference. And lastly, join the Facebook and Instagram group Convict Australia. All the links I've mentioned will be in the show notes. Thank you again. Till next time.